Before I begin, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you guys. Thank you for an opportunity to preach. Um, I know sharing the pulpit will often feel like what it is. It's sharing. Um, I'm not a professional. <laughs> You'll be able to see that very soon. Um, it's an investment, uh, and I feel it. I feel that you guys are investing in me, um, and I'm so grateful. Uh, thanks for being a church who loves to train. Um, I just want to start us off by asking a really simple question. You don't need to answer it out loud. In fact, I actually already know the answer. Um, how good are you at waiting? Take stock, assess. Like I said, I know what, I know what the answer is. <laughs> but answer internally. If you answered not good, bad, maybe abysmal, <laughs> uh, well done, you've answered correctly. Uh, if you answered pretty good or excellent, um, I'm not going to say that it's impossible, but I'm skeptical of you. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> Waiting is not something that we're naturally good at. Waiting perplexes us. It's confusing. It's trying. It's exhausting. Waiting makes us weary. Waiting is inefficiency. It's bad design. It's to be rendered obsolete. Nobody is making a new model with the tagline, new and improved, slower than ever. It's not what we want. It's boring, it's frustrating, it holds us back, keeps me from my true potential. To use a pop phrase, we feel like waiting is toxic. <laughs> um, I'm so tired of waiting. Yet to be a Christian is to wait. And I'm confident that the psalm enabled by the Holy Spirit can teach us to wait well. It can turn our bitter, impatient, frustrated grumbling into praise and joy in the midst of trial. And I believe that because the psalm will reorient our focus away from our circumstance toward the character of our good God, to our deliverer who does not delay. So I'm going to read the psalm. It's Psalm 40. Please read with me and then we'll pray for help. All right. Psalm 40, my help and my deliverer, to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips 
As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and uh, your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Please pray, pray with me for help. This is God's word. Lord, convince us this morning of the goodness of these words. Give us hearts prepared to receive them. Give us minds able to discern with wisdom how they might correct, sharpen, and edify us. Give me the words to speak to encourage my friends. Give us eyes to see your goodness in waiting. And, O oh Lord, delight and satisfy us this morning by a glimpse of your glory. And we ask all of these things by the grace of our true deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, I love me a good story, um, but one of my favorite stories is not one that I, I know if I can really call good. <laughs> um, see, the story arc of my favorite kind of stories uh, typically looks something like this. Exposition, enter character, a buffoon of some sort into a dangerous setting. Think Charlie Chaplin. Um, rising action, uh, buffoon, engages in dangerous activity, unaware of the danger. Climax, buffoon about to be destroyed. Falling action, denouement, buffoon narrowly escapes death, mildly injured. <laughs> End scene, director Michael Bay, budget, infinite, explosions, plentiful, Oscar for best picture, not a chance. <laughs> Now, one of my favorite of these stories was one my dad told me growing up about uh, his uncle, Rene, and how he got a scar on his tongue. You see, right? <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> Rene was an electrician. He had a license and everything. He was technically qualified. Mentally, he wasn't, but, you know, <laughs> I'll take what I can get. One day, Rene was doing some work on a light in someone's attic, um, and he started getting hungry. It was nearing lunchtime, so he stopped to work, grabbed his lunch, and ate in peace. Um, 
One thing you should know about Uncle Rene uh, was that he didn't feel electrical current very well, uh, which is not a great quality to have in an electrician, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, when Rene came back to work, uh, his coworker came up to him angrily and said, uh, hey, uh, you were working on the light, uh, and because you were working on the light, I thought you turned the electricity off. You went to the electrician school, I think. <laughs> um, so I started working, and I just got electrocuted. <laughs> um, you left the electricity on. Um, uh, the coworker didn't know that Rene couldn't feel current. Um, and uh, so Rene just kind of denied it. Um, and he said, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, and then he went over to the live wire, and he touched it and said, see, the electricity's not on. Uh, but the coworker didn't know that he couldn't feel current, so uh, uh, the coworker went to work again, got electrocuted a second time, <laughs> and even more angrily said, what gives? <laughs> um, if at this point you're wondering why they didn't just check the breaker, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I would, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, they went to school, apparently. I don't um, so Rene was confused. How could it be that my coworker keeps getting shocked and I feel nothing? Rene had just come back from lunch and thought, I have an idea, and being a man of science, reached into his lunch pail and grabbed a metal spoon. So one story of a scar on the tongue, plus a live wire, plus a metal spoon equals... Exactly. <laughs> he then proceeded to stick the spoon on his mouth and his tongue, like he was trying to taste death itself, um, and his tongue bespooned hand on spoon and other hand on the wire. Well, that's how Rene got a scar on his tongue. <laughs> um, when he told my dad this story, he, he would say, I can't feel current usually, but I could feel it then. <laughs> now, this story is ridiculous, it's dangerous, and obviously don't ever attempt to try anything like this at home. Um, it will kill you. <laughs> um, but as insulting as it might seem, I think when it comes to waiting in the midst of suffering, we are a lot more like Uncle Rene than we care to admit. In times of waiting and suffering, trusting the promises of God feels like clutching a live wire and we just can't feel the current. We don't feel the connection between our present experience of waiting and the promises of God. We know that it's there, but we're stuck. We, spend the whole, we could spend the whole day uh, touching it. We could go to church, attend the normal means of grace, uh, read, pray, take communion, hear God's word, but it's like somebody shut off the breaker. Seems like everyone around us, all our friends are getting zapped, joyful, excited about what God is doing, but we don't feel anything. We're working all day, suffocating in a stuffy attic, feeling around for some electricity, but it's like someone shut off the power. We take inventory of all that we're missing. No spouse, difficulty with my spouse, a wayward child who just doesn't get it, no, ch no children, job instability, people at school who won't stop making fun of my faith, some kind of besetting sin, can't seem to stop getting angry, I'm still impatient, and we're left feeling that we worship a distant God and blindly trust in empty promises. Our hand is on the wire, but the current isn't coming through. 
The faithful congregant and David are able to confidently sing, you will not restrain your mercy from me. But maybe even now as you are reading the words on the screen and singing along to this, those, those wonderful songs, um, that they were disconnected somehow from your present experience. If you're here today and that's you, you're having a hard time feeling the currents of God's faithfulness running through your life even as you wait, this psalm is for you. I don't think that the prayer of Psalm 40 was undertaken by some kind of super believer. In fact, the psalm is explicitly written by a believer who's overwhelmed by his own moral failure. I don't think David wasn't like us. I don't think he was just naturally good at waiting. Instead, I think this psalm is what we ought to pray when we can't feel the current. I think the orientation of this psalm is one we emulate when we can't seem to reconcile our suffering and waiting with the promises of God in our hearts. It's a spoon we should reach for when we want to feel the zap. You see, David, also a man of science, um, acknowledged full well his own lack of ability to rescue himself from his, his multifaceted predicament. He didn't stop there. He reached for the actions of God. Rather than merely taking inventory of what was wrong, he took inventory of God's actions toward him in the past, present, and future. What he finds is not a God who is distant from him and waiting. It is not a God who is taking his time. Instead, he found the deliverer who does not delay. He found a God who comes to his aid. Now, there are just three, there are three actions of God that the, that the psalm introduces, uh, it introduces itself with. And it's three actions of God that demonstrate God's deliverance to him. And this is what will form our outline. So we can say, I know that my deliverer will not delay because one, he hears my cry, two, he secures my steps, three, he delights my soul. So again, that's he hears my cry, he secures my steps, he delights my soul. Look with me at verse one. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, there's been some debate about what kind of psalm this is. Um, it's a little strange. Um, did you catch it as we read? Is this a psalm of lament? Is it a psalm of thanksgiving? Could it be both? <laughs> um, it opens with thanksgiving, but it ends with lament. Now, this has puzzled some folks who, believe, who, who are so puzzled by it that they can't seem to fathom that it was ever just one poem, that it must have been two. Uh, but that isn't necessary. Not all laments look as chipper, we might say, as this one. But make no mistake, David is not writing this in a time of ease. He isn't writing this shortly after a victory. He laments. He's writing this in the midst of a battle. He prays this fervently as he struggles against his enemies, with his enemies within and his enemies without. His life is threatened. He's desperate. He's in a moment where we could all be tempted to discouragement. But he stakes his prayer on a bold claim that God has heard him. He hearkens to and remembers a time when the Lord 
heard and answered his cries for help in a time of waiting. Now, if we were to just look at this psalm thematically, the psalm opens confidently that God has heard his prayer in verse 1, and the psalm ends with a prayer for God to hear once again. Look with me at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Verse 17, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. He begins with inclined and heard my cry, and then he cries out and asks God to do, do, to do that again. The orientation of this lament is Godward. It's focused and fixated on what God has done, is doing, and will do. I have a, I have a nine-month-old uh, son named Gideon. Um, most of you have held him at some point. He's awesome. Um, everybody loves Gideon. Um, I love holding him, uh, and he loves being held by anybody and everybody. He's really just the life of the party. He's a joy. Um, now, one thing I love about Gideon is you can always tell when he wants you to hold him. He'll just sort of start leaning towards you. He'll, like, almost fall out of the other person's arms and just sort of lean in your direction. He's a baby, so his head is sort of disproportionately large compared to the rest of him. <laughs> He's top-heavy. And he just kind of leans towards you and trusts the rest of him will follow. <laughs> he doesn't get scared. He just figures that whoever uh, he leans to will catch him. <laughs> this is what David does here. This whole psalm just leans towards the Lord and what he has done. This psalm is top-heavy. The first thing David sees is God's work. He doesn't know how his situation will, will work out, but he's falling towards the Lord. And he knows the Lord will receive him. David's thoughts are towards God in prayer because he believes that God's thoughts are toward him. Look with me at verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The image here is a God that not only hears prayer, it's not a God that merely is aware of your suffering, but who hears and responds with, with multiple wondrous deeds. He multiplies his wondrous deeds towards you and his thoughts towards you. It is a God who is generous, who's rich toward you, who knows your needs and is eager to provide. David leans toward God because God has been kind to him and his people. David is able to call on God in the trial of waiting because he sees God's mercy as rich and plentiful. It's boundless. God, your kindness towards me is so rich that I don't even have enough time to, to go through all the ways that it is. I love talking to old people. There's no way to say that unabruptly, by the way. I tried. <laughs> I love talking to old people, uh, like really old people. Getting an old person going is the best. Hearing about all their different experiences and stories is something I can't get enough, on, uh, enough of. They'll just sort of go on and on. Um, you don't have to draw them out. They'll volunteer. Uh, they've been through and gone through so many different things, and they've see, seen the, the world's change. David is so cognizant of God's deeds and he has made such a practice of seeing the Lord's activity in his life that he could go on like an old person. He'll just volunteer. He'll just keep going. Don't get David started on all the ways God has been kind because you'll be there for a while. A conversation about God's work in the past would take an uncomfortably long amount of your time. 
And this should give us pause as we think through how we wait. How aware are you of how the Lord has heard your prayers? How has he provided? How long could you go on? Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, writes, verse 1 is a very accurate picture of the way in which sinners are raised up from despair to hope and salvation. Yet I'm not certain that the first, wor- the first verse could be truthfully uttered by all of us. I question indeed whether any of us could thus speak. Could we say, I waited patiently for the Lord? All the rest may stand true, but this would need to be modified. I think it's hard for us to say that we've waited patiently for the Lord because I don't think we think through our lives like this. I don't think we we look at the past through spiritual eyes, able to see through how the Lord has provided. On the one hand, we might be tempted to to take prayer for granted, uh, and so prayer might lose its luster. On the other hand, we might be so discouraged by our circumstance, we might wonder if he, if he would want to hear us at all. But David, sin and all, approaches the throne of grace. David knows God is listening. David knows that God is inclined towards him, that he's bent towards him. Just as David is inclined to ask, God is inclined to answer and to meet him. It will not be withheld. In verse, in verse 11, he writes, you will not restrain your mercy from me. All of his requests to God in verses 13 through 17, all of his supplications are the overflow of his understanding of how God has treated him. David's God, our God, is not stingy, but eager to give. His mercy towards us is unrestrained. David sees God's deliverance as imminent. He samples God's actions and is able to discern God's heart for him. And this leads me to my next point. I know my deliverer will not delay because he secures my steps. Look with me at verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. This verse is, is, uh, we can just parallel this uh, with David's present trial in verses 11 through 13. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Again, David's trial here is nothing short of traumatic. Evils have encompassed me. The image here is of a military siege. I am engulfed. I have no escape. In every direction I am being overwhelmed by my enemy. I am in the pit of destruction. I have nowhere to turn. In his words, you can almost hear the taunting, ravenous, clanging rabble of his enemies and his sins surrounding his keep about to raise it to the ground. If you're looking for a passage on besetting indwelling sin, here's a great one. My iniquities have overtaken me. They've outdone all of my attempts to stop them. But in in the midst of the rabble you hear is Christ, your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. 
Here's another question. Have you ever walked across a bog? I have. Um, I did it a few years ago and I fell in, mud up to my waist, it was miserable. Don't recommend it. Every step you make in a bog makes you feel like you're sinking. You kind of get used to it a little bit and you slosh around, but the whole time you're just waiting for this moment where you step and the ground underneath you just kind of swallows you. David waits and his heart fails him. He feels like the ground is just about to swallow him up. But the Lord takes David away from the bog and puts him on a rock. The Lord guards David's keep so that he can be confident even in the siege. David's foreknowledge of God's activity, his knowledge that the Lord will preserve him in this trial is based on his understanding of what God has already done. God has secured David's steps, and so David sees God as the securer of steps. There is perfect confluence between what God is doing for David and who God is. And again, we don't know what David is specifically referencing in his trial. We don't know what, he's t- what exactly his trial was. And this is by design. David's trial is nonspecific because it's the trial of all of God's people. This psalm is big enough for all of us. This trial is big enough for all of us. Insert whatever worry is encompassing your thoughts. Another overpacked week, another job interview, another call saying they went with someone else, another negative pregnancy test, another call from the police about a wayward child, more bad news from the doctor, another sleepless night, another failed relationship, another angry argument with my spouse, another friendship turned sour, another sinful thought, whatever it is, it's encompassed me, it's overwhelmed me, I haven't the slightest clue how to move forward, I can't fix it, I can't see out beyond the clouds, I can't feel the current, all my senses are gone, my heart fails me, I'm undone. And the banner hanging over the ruins of my life His steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. His steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. God looks at all of God's mercies toward him like he's a farmer walking a field ripe for harvest. He walks around plucking them up out of the ground. He feasts and then he replants the seeds. David just sees his circumstance as a step in the life cycle of God's unrestrained mercy. And this can bring David joy even before his sorrows are over. And this brings me to the last point. I know my deliverer does not delay because he delights my soul. Look with me at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The God who hears and secures also delights the soul. God in his goodness and mercy towards us in suffering gives us a new song to sing. I'm just going to give a brief survey of praise in the psalm. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. 
I have told the glad news of deliverance in the congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Worship is the fruit of faithful waiting. Worship is the fruit of faithful waiting. Fixating ourselves on God's work in the midst of waiting isn't a guarantee that we will get what we ask for. It's not a promise that we won't experience pain. It isn't a promise of immediate relief. It's a posture that produces worship. It's a posture that convinces us of God's glory and worth above all else. In this psalm, a sight of God's unrestrained mercy results in unrestrained praise. The Lord has not and will not restrain his mercy, and that means I cannot restrain my lips from praise. I have to tell the glad news of deliverance. I have to tell of who this God is. My reward for waiting is not that I will receive earthly things from God, but that I will know more of him. God is not delivering me from my trial to earthly ease. He is delivering me to a deeper understanding of his goodness. My reward is a new song, a new way that I proclaim the Lord's faithfulness to me. As I was reading the psalm, as I was preparing, I was reminded of, of, of the hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word." just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. David sees himself as an actor in God's story of proving and of demonstrating his worth and his majesty over everything. Another sorrow Yet another way, I've proved him. When we wait, it's not hard to find people that will talk to us about the Lord, about how the Lord might be growing us in our waiting. Um, we hear it in small group. Uh, we, we hear it on Sunday morning. It's, it's tempting to feel sometimes that the reminders that the Lord is producing something with my waiting is just kind of writing me off. It's dismissive of my pain. It's people making light of how I, uh, how I feel. Sometimes it might be that. But do you see how precious it is that the Lord is using your sorrow, even your sorrow, to demonstrate his goodness? That the promise he has for you in sorrow is greater joy that in the midst of suffering, he is making you more like him, that he is multiplying your joy and his wondrous deeds towards you. He's giving you new reasons to praise him. Now, did you notice the mysterious character in the psalm? Look with me at verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
And then in verses 6 through 8, And sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now when you're reading the psalm for the first time, it might kind of feel like, okay, (laughs) what's going on? I, I, I thought we were talking about something else, but that's fine. It kind of sticks out a little bit. I think if we were to assume that David is just talking about himself, we would be pretty disappointed. Certainly there's a sense in which, uh, in which the psalmist and the, and, and the faithful congregant can speak of themselves in this way. But in a greater sense, David speaks well beyond himself here. The true blessed man here is one who is obedience in the flesh. He is the embodiment of all, of all that God has ever expressed about himself. He's the Word incarnate. Now, the author of Hebrews quotes this in Hebrews 10. I'll just read it for you really quickly. Um, there's no need to turn there. It says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. David sees God's faithfulness to him through a veil. David is able to find enough of God's kindness within a shadow of what we have. How much more should we be able to see with the substance of Christ? David can see, see with deliverance from battle, with his presence in, in the tent, with goats and bulls supposedly taking away sins, right? How much more should we be able to see with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? of being a new creation, of life in him. David had a high priest who needed to make sacrifices for his own sins. We have a high priest who gives us perfect access to the throne of grace. Oh, that we would be aware of how God hears our prayers, of how God secures our steps, how God delights us this side of the cross. In the middle of our psalm, we have an image of a man God creates and forms with an open ear. An ear open to hear the words of God and act on them. He embodies all that God has communicated about his character. And this man came. He did all in perfect pace and step with God's will. He never faltered. The entirety of his life conveyed in perfection the obedience required to know the Lord. There was pristine confluence between what the Lord said and his character. He was the true psalmist. He truly waited patiently for the Lord. 
He did not turn to the proud. He was all that God ever said in one man. He was the true image of God. But in his moment of affliction, the sky turned red. When Jesus asked for deliverance, he said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But rather than delivering him from those who delighted in his affliction, the Father delivered him up. The greatest act of deliverance the fount of every kind of act of mercy you and I have ever received or will ever receive sticks out like a sore thumb in the middle of the psalm hundreds of years before the coming of our Lord. The need for the Messiah was evident. The rest of Israel's history made it plain. And here we remind ourselves that we can only pray this psalm because the true psalmist was crushed on our behalf. Those who sought Jesus' life took it. Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. This is why we can say the Lord will not restrain his mercy. This is why we sing. This is why we can sleep soundly in the midst of trial. This is why we can trust God hears us over the rabble of the enemy. This is why we're surrounded and we're not swallowed up. Why we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so what do we do while we wait? Don't give up on the means of grace. Don't give up on the means of grace. Pray to the Lord knowing that he will hear you. Read the word knowing that it will change you. Come to church knowing that you're part of the family. Sing. Sing each song like it's new each day. Sing of the grace and the mercy of the Savior like you've only just heard of it. And lastly, be gentle with those who are suffering. Just as the Lord is gentle with us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are our help and our deliverer. Do not delay. Lord, help us as we wait. Help us see your hand Lord, as we, struggle and against, as we struggle against sin. Lord, though we fall, we will rise, as you've said. Lord, you will be a light to us. Lord, do these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.